This is Eric Messerschmidt, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Happy New Year, Ilya. Happy New Year, Ben. How are you? I, I'm not going to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but I'm getting over COVID. <laughs> and, and, and longtime listeners will be like, didn't you have it once before three years ago? The answer is yes, I did. Uh, and Bill Totolo had to fill in for me. And now uh, I'm uh, fully vaxxed and boosted in whatever shots they can give me for it, I'll take. And uh, this bout of COVID was sort of like a, not even that nasty of a cold. It was just an unpleasant cold, uh, but it was COVID. So I had to quarantine. Gotcha. All right. So uh, you should be good for the next few months, though. Probably unlikely to get it again. No, that's true. That's true. It just meant that I had the boringest New Year's Eve of all time because I wasn't going to go anywhere because I uh, found out that day I had COVID. Not a lot of singing of all Lang Syne. No, not a lot of singing, period. Although I did do an at-home test just a few hours ago and came up uh, negative. So I think I'm okay. And I'm just getting over the nasality of this. So happy new year to all of our listeners. And I'm excited about uh, what we're going into. I'm going to go on record and say, I think 2023 is one of the best movie years in recent history for me. I, I think we had some just amazingly noteworthy movies and uh, we've talked to some awesome dps of them and hopefully we're going to talk to a few more of them but uh i think it was a remarkable year i'm interested to see if 2024 can even come near to comparing to it so ben my hopes are that 2024 is a great year for movies too uh who's on the show today we have the one and only amazing eric messerschmidt on the show today excellent and I have to say that I'm a little sorry that we didn't get to talk about The Killer. It was, uh, you know, when when you're doing these press things, you're kind of on a one-track thing. So we were talking about Ferrari. Happy to talk about Ferrari. Amazing looking film. Great work. Michael Mann directed. R- really interesting to hear the whole story of how that was put together. And maybe we can get him to come back and talk about The Killer another time because The Killer certainly merits its own uh, full conversation. But uh, Eric is awesome. And I'll never forget when we had him on here for Mank. And I said, I will be shocked if you aren't nominated for Best Cinematographer. And I th- maybe this is me reading into it, but I feel like he kind of looked at me like, you're crazy. And then not only was he nominated, but he won. And That's on right. our Oscar special with uh, Janelle Riley. I remember having this conversation and I was the one digging in on Mank. I thought Mank was going to win and you and Janelle uh, had some other fly-by-night, uh, you know, whatever ideas. <laughs> and, uh, and and I turned out to be right. So, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm a stopped clock. I'm right twice a day, but I was right on that one. But Ilya, before we get to this interview with Eric Messerschmidt, what's our close focus? Because uh, this is... Uh, it's, we're it's, a little a, bit of a, it's a little bit of a doozy, I think, A little bit of a third well, rail. It's a third yeah. rail. And now, close focus. It's a third, call it a third rail. We, we, were, we were forewarned by our producer, Alana Cody, who was like, I don't think you should talk about this. I think this is not mm. something that should be on the podcast. Let's, but let's, let's dig in. Okay, so they've announced a 10th Star Wars movie. It's going to be produced by Damon Lindenoff. It's about the, I guess, uh, constructing of a new Jedi Order or something like mm. that. It's a, it's okay. a new, new movie. And... The Star Wars fanboys are upset at the choice of director. Uh, Is it because George Lucas decided to come back and do what he did to the prequels? (laughs) No, but that that seems like it would make a lot of sense. No, it's, I believe it's Charmaine Obeyed Chinoy. That's exactly Uh, how you pronounce her name. Okay, great. She has directed a couple of episodes of the current uh, Marvel television series, Miss Marvel. Uh, She's made a bunch of features, and she's even won two Oscars for uh, short documentary films. Not qualified. I think that this is, like, I, I see there's a whole article here. We'll put a link to it in the show notes about the fanboys who are upset about her being... Okay, you but know, here I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a counter pitch. I'm going to give you a devil's yeah. advocate point okay. of view from the fanboy's point of view. Okay, yeah. but what about if it was a dude instead of this person? I, if it was some random dude, I think they'd be angry too. I think they'd be, oh, they'd be think, angry. I, I think, think they're mad because it's a woman. Because like, oh. and here's and here's my proof. Who complained when the Russo brothers were brought on to direct Captain America: Winter Soldier? No Nobody. One. Yeah. 
Nobody complained. The Russo brothers had solid credits directing Lo- TV. Long, were, tra- long track record, for sure. Track record of directing television. I don't believe they had directed a feature before that. There are so many examples of people who were brought in to direct a Marvel movie who didn't have a varied filmography or a a deep studio filmography. My concern, here's Mm -hmm. my concern, because I think Charmide Obey-Chinoy is an amazing director. I'm afraid that uh, what's going to happen is she's going to be dropped into the giant studio machinery of Lucasfilm and... uh, Chewed up and spit out? All of the nuance that makes her work interesting, which she was able to use in Ms. Marvel, by the way, is going to be sucked out clean. But Mm -hmm. I also support her a thousand percent in cashing in and taking a job on a high profile thing that will put her on on the next plateau in her career. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. The one question I have, I have been wondering because of how good she did on The Mandalorian, why Bryce Dallas Howard... That isn't was directing my, this. That was my first thought too. My first thought is that Bryce Dallas Howard did so great on The Mandalorian, and yeah. there's been uh, there's been other women who have directed Star Wars television. I thought they might take someone who was steeped in the universe, and they didn't. They they took an outsider. Well, Bryce Dallas and, Howard. I mean, like the the Variety story writes itself because her dad directed Solo, Solo a Star Wars yeah. movie. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like spanning the generations. But like, look. The Star Wars people are aware that Bryce Dallas Howard is a person who could do this. And <laughs> sure, they made yeah. they came to the conclusion that they came to. But the fanboy thing, I think, is uh, straight up misogyny. And pardon my French, uh, they can go fuck off with that shit. You know, if all you want is the original OG Star Wars, then go watch it. It's still there. It never went anywhere. You can watch it all. It's They're trying something. And honestly, if, if I have a complaint about a lot of these franchises it's that they become too rote so bringing in someone with uh, someone who's not american and somebody with a documentary aesthetic to make a star wars movie i support that because to me the last excellent star wars movie was gareth edwards uh rogue one and uh you know rogue one feels like it comes from a slightly different more auteurish director and when you bring Do you have some- an issue with the art auteur director though it seems like that might be exactly what the fanboys want you had jj abrams you had you know ron howard you had all these different people come in here and they're all you know they, they're name directors i don't know they're name directors but like is i love ron howard and we've had him on the show but ron howard was there because uh uh, Lord that, mo- that, yeah. that, that movie had gone through some a directorial change, shall we say. And I think Ron Howard was brought in as a journeyman. J.J. Abrams is a journeyman director. And I feel like sometimes he'll make an auteur thing like Super 8. And sometimes he'll make a journeyman director thing like Mission Impossible 3. And, you know, Ryan Johnson made arguably the most controversial Star Wars movie. And you don't get any more auteurish than Ryan Johnson. I feel like if you use Marvel as an example, Marvel starts auteurish with people like Jon Favreau and Kenneth Branagh. And around the time they bring in the Russo brothers, I think that they're saying, like, let's bring in journeymen who can execute the vision of this franchise Hmm. and put less of a personal stamp on it. You bring Charmaine Obey-Shinoy in to put a personal stamp on it. But frankly, you bring in Gareth Edwards to put a personal you stamp know, on it. If we're comparing Marvel, you know, James Gunn's got a complete aesthetic in his point of view and everything else, so much so that DC is now going to be running the DC empire. So I agree. I, got- I completely agree. But also, I feel like if you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy was not a franchise anyone gave one crap about when James Gunn did it. And it's overwhelming popularity got it so sucked into the MCU and it became a big part of the MCU. I don't uh, don't quote me on this. I don't know, but I don't believe Guardians of the Galaxy played into Kevin Feige's master plan after they realized they were really, you know, sitting on something after the first Iron Man movie was a huge success. Hmm. And so, yes, I agree. James Gunn is totally an auteur director, but also he kind of flourished with DC doing the Suicide Squad and then doing the Peacemaker TV series. And now they're going to roll the dice in this era of intense superhero fatigue of having James (laughs) Gunn hopefully bring a different energy to the DC comic movie universe. Star Wars, I feel like, has been as big in certain ways, but has been a rockier road because they couldn't I go back to the to the prequels that George Lucas made. They're very divisive. I think that the story is solid and the storytelling is super meh, even for its own time. It, it's not using technology well. It doesn't feel as grounded and interesting as the originals. And then the recent three, 
feel more like Star Wars, but the story they're telling is 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 a bit of a rehash at best. And I feel like Ryan Johnson tried to really shake it up, and no one liked that. So, mm. so, but but we can all agree that Andor was awesome. So really, a- Andor is awesome, and and I love and I love the Mandalorian. Yeah. And you know, I mean, like there have been good stuff, but but I guess that's also you know that that goes into it as well, though. Is that in a world where we have the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett yeah. and all of these franchises, what's one more freaking Star Wars movie? Like, chill out, fanboys. There will be something else. You're allowed. Not everything has to be uh per- made just for you. Uh, you know, bespoke exactly the way you want. It. And I, for one, am happy that Charmino Bechenoy is going to have a chance to make a big movie, mm-hmm. uh, a big movie that will have a chance to be seen by a lot of people. Yeah. And no pressure. But uh, if, it, <laughs> if, it, if it does well, perhaps it could spawn all kinds of new stuff. So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and and sometimes, you know, like when uh, A Wrinkle in Time did poorly and there was discussion of could a woman of color helm a, a tentpole movie? I'm like, Fuck off with that. I mean, it's it's not a fair thing to say. Not like, at all. Yeah. Like if uh, Christopher Nolan made a movie that didn't do well, no one's going to be like, oh, can a white guy helm a movie, uh, a tenpole movie? Like nobody cares. I don't think so. I don't feel like the weight of the world should be on her shoulders. I feel like hopefully Kathleen Kennedy and the people at Lucasfilm give her enough rope to make it enough hers and that she reciprocates and does what she can do to make it feel enough like Star Wars that it brings us a new flavor and a new texture to this franchise. And I'm looking forward to whatever it is, and I am rooting for it because I want to like Star Wars. But uh, since the prequels, my religious-like love of Star Wars is broken forever, and so I can look at them as individual movies, like I, I think is a healthier way to do it anyway. These aren't your identity. They're movies. It's it's not who you are. It's a movie that you go see. It's at it's the fine. end of the day, it's only a movie. I mean, and I'm saying this as someone who's spent with you quite a bit of time talking about how they how these things are made. That, that, that's true. All right. Well, I think we should get to the interview with Eric Messerschmidt. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Yeah, congratulations on Ferrari. I I, uh, I watched it last night, and and maybe this is a hacky question. I like to get the hacky questions out of, out of the way first. Your first big movie was with David Fincher, and a director who's known for being exacting and being perfectionistic. And now Ferrari for Michael Mann, a director known for being exacting and perfectionistic and legendary in, in that way. You know, what are the similarities and what are the differences in the way these two guys work and and how you work with them? Well, I mean, you know, both Michael and David came up from a time when films were made, where they were being made on film. It was very difficult, I think, harder to make a movie then, you know, you know, back in the 90s, back, you know, in the early 2000s. It's harder to make a movie then than it is now in general. You know, it's like technically harder, harder to get the money, harder to get the audience. Um, you know, they, they're used to the pressures of that. And, and as a result, they take it enormously seriously and they're mm-hmm. very experienced, you know. I mean, both of them, they're very experienced. And they, they've also, in their own way, developed their, their own unique grammar, you know, their own kind of unique technique. And that's, you know, that's really attractive to me. You know, it's attractive to work with with directors that have their own kind of practice in place, you know, and, the, you know, as a cinematographer, you, you figure out how you slot into that and how you contribute to it. You know, it's but it's nice to work with directors that have a kind of working cinema grammar in, in the works already that's well established. You know, I mean, they're very different filmmakers. You mm-hmm. know, the types of movies they make are different. The techniques they use are different. You know, David is yeah, I mean, precise is an understatement. You know, he's he's, <laughs> he's very kind of methodical about how how he uses the camera and how he structures his films. Um, Michael is uh, more spontaneous, more kind of visceral, but also detail oriented. You know, incredibly detail oriented. But his you know his use of the camera is more gestured. I think and he's more interested in eliciting a spontaneous response from an actor, for example, uh, depending on the situation. You know, but it's uh, but yeah, I mean that's you know that is the joy of being a cinematographer. Really is like you come in and you come and play in someone else's sandbox and you learn how you can contribute how your you know your sensibilities can 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 help that person make their film 
So uh, I, I had read that Michael Mann had been trying to get Ferrari made for uh, it's about 30 years. It was going to be his follow up to Last of the Mohicans. And he had, you know, reams and reams of research and stuff. Talk about like stepping into a world like that. That's that researched. Also, you're being brought on to realize this guy's, you know, dream for 30 years. I know that like when you get there on the day and you're setting up a shot, you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking about what you've got to do that day. But what was it like kind of stepping into somebody's like passion project, especially somebody as notoriously uh, relentless as a filmmaker as Michael? I'm sorry. Michael Mann's work is just so, you know, un- unbelievably inspirational and one of a kind. But it's like I can't imagine stepping into that guy's passion project. You know, like what what, what did that feel yeah. like? Sure. Well, I mean, look, I, I I was and still am a fan of Michael. You know, I'm I mean, as a person who studies cinema, you know, as a student of cinema, I, I I'm an enormous fan of his. And you know, when I got the job, I I just immediately felt an incredible responsibility to to give him everything I could. You know, to to, to try and give him the movie he wanted to make. You know, from my participation end, anyway, from what I do. In the case of this movie, it was incredibly helpful that he'd been making it. You know, and and I, it's not. Like Michael had been trying to make it, I believe Michael had been making it for thirty years because his his research library, really his you know his his research material and his preparation was astounding. I mean, he had he'd been to Modena many times. He'd taken all sorts of photographs. He had a, you know incredible collection of of newsreel photography, you know of of the era of motorsport. He had uh, every book ever written about Enzo Ferrari and history. Ferrari he had you know personal letters he had uh just an incredible collection of things that really helped shape the film you know and 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 it's it's sometimes you know you join a project and you sort of start from scratch with a director the director's been on it six months or something and you sort of feel like you know you figure out the film together that was not the case on this movie you know michael knew exactly what he wanted to make and that you know um that alleviates a lot of that pressure but uh yeah i mean i you know i think michael is incredibly passionate about this movie and even though it's the only film i've done with him i happen to believe that every every movie that michael makes he is passionate about it he is incredibly focused you know he's up at four in the morning at the gym and he's you know he's making shot lists and thinking about how he's going to structure his day and shoot till 8 9 p.m and, and and he's back at it the next day you know he works incredibly hard so you know every, everyone around him feels that pressure i think yeah, and and I feel like one of the things that kind of oozes through the movie is kind of the completeness of the world, which I'm assuming comes from the research. But when you're given the research, how do you filter that research? Are you looking at it, you know, like if he gives you a letter, are you looking at it and thinking about how it will affect the look? Or is, is it more thematic, ethereal? Are you just absorbing all this stuff and figuring out how to set, how to create that world, how to show that world? Well, you know, the kind of pre-visualization aspect of look creation or, or the way a movie is, is meant to be perceived visually, to me, that that's important, you know, that kind of like, okay, what do we want it to look like, you know, that kind of yeah. concept. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I always feel like that's what the, yeah. cinema, the cinematographer is like given a lot of like, hey, look, look at these Renaissance paintings, but then you have to be like, okay, I'm going to get this light, I'm going to put it over here, I'm going to put this lens right. on here, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, but the reality is, is I uh, we're involved in that, and, and you know, and cinematographers historically get a lot of credit for the way movies look. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, actually. I mean, I think the production designers, the costume designers, really historically deserve more credit, um, mm. and we, you know, we tend to take a lot of it as, as DPs. You know, I'm going through that process, having constant discussions with those people. You know, and Michael, of course, in the case of this movie, you know, like. What is the film? And, but I also want to have conversations about what is the pace of the film? What is the structure of the movie? What is the story? What's significant? Because all that stuff that you absorb over that, that prep process makes the, the kind of aesthetic decisions that we have to make in the, in the spur of the moment that much more reflexive. If I really wholly understand the movie that he's trying to make, you know, from a holistic standpoint, then I don't have to over-intellectualize where I'm putting that light, you know, in, in my mind. It's sort of, it's very easy, you know, and if we're sort of in, if we're in agreement about, okay, this is the image that represents this scene or whatever, like, you know, in the case of painting, which was a significant contributor to the way this movie was meant to look, we can look at, you know, two dozen paintings and distill their similarities down into a few kind of gestured, you know, cinematography techniques as opposed to painting techniques, you know, like, you know, it's like, okay, this should be soft top light or whatever those decisions are really easy if you spent the time, you know, uh, we talked about painting, you know, we talked about painting, but, but also, you know, locations are such a huge contributor to the way the movie looks. And Michael knew and was quite clear, you know, I have to, I have to shoot this movie in Italy, 
you know, this, we could not make this movie if we went to Atlanta and faked it for Northern Italy, you know, like a lot of people would do these days, you know, or go shoot in Toronto or something, you know, and like paint a bunch of facades or Bulgaria or whatever, you know, it's like we shot it in Italy where, where it belongs. And most of the locations that we shot in are the real locations that are historically accurate. You know, the front of Enzo's house is Enzo's house. The barbershop is Enzo's barbershop. The mausoleum is the real Ferrari mausoleum where he, oh, where wow. he and his family are buried. Oh you my know? God, that's crazy. And, and those things, you know, they not only contribute enormously, I think, to the story and the performance of the actors. You know, if, if you put Adam Driver in a real mausoleum, it's a, it's an entirely different experience than some I've seen the whole crew like stage. You walk into a real mausoleum and you're like, Enzo Ferrari's right there. <laughs> like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's got to be, uh, that has to like fill the crew with some kind of reverence, you know, like, yeah, if, well, you if you're a human being. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And also, you know, it changes, I think, the tone because. Uh, you're not just making the movie for the filmmaker and the audience, but then, you know, you're making the movie for the Ferrari family. You know, we're, yeah. we have to be very conscious and respectful to the, you know, to the brand, to the, the legacy of, of the family, et cetera, you know, and you really feel that. And, and so, you know, those, but all that stuff contributes ultimately to the way the movie looks. I mean, I, to me, it's like, I don't, you know, I have kind of day-to-day responsibilities on the set, lighting choices, lens choices, et cetera, or however you want to compartmentalize that stuff. But um, yeah. To me, it's it's a much bigger conversation than that. Just like you know, just where I put the lights or whatever. It's like that's those that's the simple stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and, and probably more than anyone we've ever spoken to, you talk a lot about editing and how how the stuff edits together. And I assume you know, like th- this stuff edits together, especially when you get into the racing stuff. You know, the the way you're covering the races is very uh, like is the camera literally scraping the ground like the camera was so low to the ground in some of those shots. And it really gives you, you know, this insane, strong perspective. The only uh, racing movie that I feel like I've ever seen that even attempted stuff like that was Ron Howard's movie Rush, Mm -hmm. where uh, Anthony Dodd Mantle just put, you know, teeny tiny cameras in in every little space. How did you approach? Because there's kind of two worlds in this movie, right? There's the dramatic story of Ferrari, his family, the impending bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the racing stuff. And uh, they do feel like one of a piece, but the racing stuff is so kinetic. How did you approach uh, filming that stuff? I think that the movie is very much about contrasts. You know, it's, it's about these sort of polar forces in opposition in, in his life. You know, yeah. his his personal life, the factory's battle between racing and finance and, you know, yeah. kind of capitalism and splitting his time between his personal life and his passion for racing. And, you know, they're all these kind of opposite forces. And yeah, we wanted the movie to have, you know, the visuals of that film to really distinctly differentiate those two, those two places, the kind of dramatic stuff, the, the, you know, the actor driven scenes were meant to be much more kind of classically composed and structured and formal. We're moving the camera, but not very much. And then the, you know, the Michael wanted the, the racing scenes to be incredibly kinetic and, and visceral. Uh, you know, so we didn't we didn't appropriate any of the kind of classic car storytelling techniques, you know, which, which are all sort of driven around explaining to the audience who's in front and who's in third and who's overtaking, who's in the corner. You know, it's sort of plot driven storytelling. I mean, there's some of that is essential in the movie, but really it's about the energy and the emotion of, of, of what these guys are going through, I think. And, you know, so we handheld the camera and, the you know, in the passenger seat of the car sometimes the car's going 150 miles an hour, you know. Patrick Dempsey's driving the car himself, and, and Roberto D'Angelis, our, our, our A-camera operator, sitting there with him. I was about to ask, we just about to ask were, yeah. were you the one oper- operating? I was like, not. No, no. I was com- <laughs> comfortably looking at a monitor, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and that was really important to Michael, and he understood that. You know, he, that was the language he wanted to use. How do you he do that safely, though? Like, that. That, that sounds really... Well, you know, everyone's strapped in. We have an incredibly competent stunt team with us and um mm-hmm. and the roads are locked off and you know we never put anyone in danger you know in the case of uh, patrick he's a race car driver you know he is mm-hmm. he's he's an actor but he's also a very experienced race car driver and you know which is why we were comfortable putting putting roberto in those situations you know when the when the other actors are driving that maybe didn't have quite that ex- that level of experience uh we you know we had the car on what, what you call a biscuit rig which is which is a, a it's essentially a drivable platform you can put the picture car and you can drive at those speeds safely but there's a there's a precision driver controlling the car and then the uh. Uh, the camera crew strapped in you know so there are a variety of tools that we use depending on the you know whatever level of concern we had or or whatever you know but um but yeah you know it's this it's it's high velocity filmmaking no doubt for sure uh, but and- in a very controlled way 
And I'd read that you'd use the Sony Venice 2, which enables you to like decouple the sensor or something so that you can put the lens wherever you want. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that particular camera system has a has a version where you can pull the lens block off the camera body. And then the, there's an umbilical cable that connects to the camera body where all the, all the image processing happens. So you essentially have the sensor and the lens and you can handhold it. And it's, you know, it's like the, you know, the size of a, I don't know, like a lady's wallet, maybe with a lens on it. And you can kind oh, of wow. move it around. You know, it meant we could put the lens right, you know, right in the actor's face and, you know, get this very kind of visceral camera position, um, you know, which would, would have been very difficult with any other camera system. Really, the primary goal was, you know, Michael wanted, Michael wanted to put the audience in, right in the car. Like, how do you even create the coverage for the, for these races? Because it feels like the camera is like everywhere and there, yeah. there's there's so much stuff and it all looks amazing. But like, how do you create kind of a comprehensive plan for, for getting it? Because so much of this movie is that race. Well, yeah, I mean, that's Michael, you know, it's Michael. He, he, you know, we would sit down in the morning and generally there, you know, we're not, we're not racing the entire race in continuity and then covering it like a, like a, like the formula one, you know, there are sort of specific moments and they're scripted moments. Um, some of them are unscripted, but most of them were scripted and they're, you know, there's specific things like overtakes or, you know, when they're in the mountains and, and, uh, and he's, he, he's pushing Barra towards that corner and, you know, one of them has to break and Barra is forced off the road. You know, those are, yeah, those are plot driven beats that, you know, the, the audience clearly has to understand. So, you know, those are those are shots that that Michael is is his camera directing. And, and also, you know, they're all in complete concert with the stunt performers, you know, so we have this specific maneuver we have to accomplish. This is, you know, this car has to be here. This car has to be here. The camera's going to be here and it's going to capture this moment. Um, you know, there's there's elements of that, obviously, in the film that, that we focused on. Um, but then there's, you know, the kind of visceral stuff, for example, when they when they're driving into, you know, into the town square and there's this great shot. I love this shot where where the camera's next to Patrick Dempsey and he's sort of in this tunnel of very narrow Italian street. And then he comes out and you hear the crowd roar and, this, you know, it gets very bright. And that's more about the kind of the visceral energy of, of, of motor racing in that era, I think, and above and beyond everything else, something that, that Michael wanted to wanted to show the audience and, and get them to understand. Well, let's talk about that, like the way that you approach, you know, the dramatic scenes. I noticed, and I always want to know when I notice something like this, that there's like a lot of subtle zoom lens work in there. And it's not like 1970s Starsky and Hutch. It's very subtle, but obviously you can make the choice between whether you're going to be on a crane or a dolly or a zoom or however you're going to do it. What makes you choose zoom? What What about zoom lensing? What are you communicating? What Even if it's just kind of a, an intuitive decision, but like, what do you think is the difference between that and any other kind of movement? Well, between moving the camera or zooming the camera, you mean? Yeah, like, or, let's, like, yeah let's say you were, you were going from a, wide, uh, a medium to a tight, on somebody mm -hmm. and you could put it on a dolly or you could put it on a zoom what would be the thing that would make you choose the zoom over the dolly i think the audience's perception of the zoom is different than the audience's perception of the dolly you know the audience the, the the dolly is a very deliberate kind of planned move uh in a way you know you have this kind of like very structured formal uh you know the the, the dolly requires uh, you know a number of people working together to to, to accomplish it which is great. You know, it's, I mean, that's, you know, that kind of deliberate push in or that deliberate pull back or whatever, there's a formality to it that can be very effective. I, you know, I think Michael, Michael likes that kind of the moment between the moment, you know, and a lot of the stuff he's operating the camera himself, by the way, you know, we give him the zoom controller and he's just, he's, he's picking those moments and zooming in as he wants to. Oh, uh, interesting. Know. So there, that tool, I think in the hands of someone who, who wants to read the, read the performance, and make a judgment in the performance is very effective. You know, it's not so much a, it's not so much the process of okay, when she says this line, you're going to push the camera in, the focus puller knows that it's going to happen, the operator is prepared for it, and all that stuff happens. You know, yeah. you know, the zoom controller in the hand of the director, and he's watching Penelope Cruz speak, and and he just you know squeezes the lens in a little bit. It's just it's a different emotional response. Um, I like that kind of contrast, sort of modern techniques against against a film that that takes place, you know, that it's that a period film is, uh, you know, it's telling a historical story. Well, that's something I also that kind of uh, jumped out at me when I was watching it is all the different ways that you could approach period 
And some people will put a fog filter or, you know what? I mean, that's maybe cliche, but you know what I mean? Like they'll, sure. they'll, they'll try and make it evoke memory. And then there's, you know, on the flip side of it, there's, you know, one of my all time favorite period pieces, LA Confidential, where it feels like a very modern film that just is taking place back then. And that's sort of what this, this I, I feel like was in the latter camp where it felt like a modern film inside those trappings of the, the trappings of the, of 1957. Was there discussion between uh, you and Michael Mann about like how to balance the the laying on of period versus making it feel like a modern movie, but it was taking place in that time period? Well, you know, I, I never wanted to make a you know like a formal English costume drama. You know, like we're not making that kind of film. And I, I don't, you know, that's not Michael's. That's not something that interested him. You know, at least related to this movie, I, I don't think. Um, the thing about it is you put Ferraris on the road, you put people in Italian locations, uh, you know, you shoot it in those, in the real locations. A lot of the period stuff is done for you. And I think something that happens in cinema quite often is people reach for the period. You know, we go to some backlot universal studios and we wet down the cobblestones and we put people in top hats and we put smoke in the background and we, you know, we put the camera on the, on the dolly and we very formally, you know, and it looks period. But it's because the obsession in the in the whole conversation is about making it period enough or whatever. You know, we we were in the real place. You know, we were in the real place. We had the real cars on the street, people in the costume. And then, you know, I think Michael's then takes his his technique is, you know, this this is very much Michael's way of making movies. And he and he tells a story dramatically the way he thinks he needs to. And the period stuff, you know, the audience just buys. You know, I, I don't I, I don't know that that the, the period in terms of drama, in terms of what what dramatically is happening on screen that the period contributes that much to it other than context, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I don't think that that, you know, aside from making sure that things are historically accurate and and relevant out of respect was ever much of the, much of the conversation, you know, it's, you know, Michael is very focused on what's happening dramatically and how he wants the audience to feel in a given scene, you know, and that's, that's the primary focus every day. And, And I think that that's, that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's like this, really hyper focus on on the emotional response of the audience you know and and how his characters interact and, and how best to capture that interaction um so yeah i mean we use a steady cam we use handheld we use you know every trick in the book to, however however we felt we uh we would best communicate that um and you were saying that he was like obsessively working on and maybe obsessively that's my word not your word uh but working on uh shot lists and stuff like that what was the preparation and to what degree did you involve yourself in pre-visualization storyboards shot lists overheads like what w- what was the process sure. for you guys well it varied i mean it depends like any filmmaker you know it kind of depends on the scenes the very structured stuff we discussed at length about how he was going to block it and where everyone was going to be and how that was going to structure out you know that was a very kind of classical way of working some of the other stuff you know it can't be prepped that way you know the 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 scene like for example when when laura and enzo are fighting in the in the living room when she's you know she sort of holds him accountable for, for the affair she's standing by that lamp that's something we blocked on the day. You know, we worked, you know, he worked out with Penelope and Adam, how, how they, they wanted to work it and they were rehearsed and I would watch the rehearsal and, you know, see how that, how that's structured. And then we have a quick discussion about how it's going to get covered and I would light it and, you know, relatively quickly. And then, and then we shoot it, you know, because those scenes, I believe, first of all, it's, I, I think it's incredibly disrespectful to the actors to just say, okay, you're standing here and you're standing here and you're going to have the conversation and then we're going to shoot it with these six shots because we've already discussed it together in the, in the, in the office, particularly these very dramatic scenes. Uh, the actors have to play and it has to feel natural. If you're going to do it over and over again, it has to, it, it can't be this kind of rigid thing where you, you know, you've told everyone where to stand and they just have to deliver the lines. Um, you know, so, so no amount of prep really prepares you for that. You know, you sort of have to have a, have a rough plan in place. And, and then we execute that, that rough plan, depending on how things fall into place, uh, you know, on the day, the racing scenes were different. You know, the racing scenes, there's safety considerations and there are logistical kind of location considerations of which roads do we have to block off and where can people watch from and where can all the trucks be parked? Cause we're going to drive through all the, you know, and a lot of that stuff is learning from Michael about how he wants to cover it, going back, communicating with the assistant director and the, and the producer and the locations department, say, okay, we're going to put these cameras here. These are the safe areas. This is where, where we can park stuff, you know, and there's, there are larger just, you know, practical discussions happening ar- around that information. 
and and sometimes I was very involved in those conversations, you know, with Michael about how we were going to cover them, and other times not. You know, other times he would show up in the morning and say, "I want to do this close up. I want to do this shot. I want to do this shot. I want to do this shot." Okay, great. You know, you know, we shot it in fifty eight days. It was pretty fast schedule. Oh my god, but, that's know. crazy fast. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy so fast was, for that. Yeah, you know, and no second unit. You know, there was no second unit. It was you know, we Michael directed everything, and we and we um you know we shot it all as a as a first unit film, really. Um, the exception of, of a few inserts, I think. So it's, that's, that's interesting because um, yeah. I, I once talked to uh, someone who'd done a lot of second unit for a big director and I was asking him about second unit and his thing, his immediate thing he told me was, if you want to see how to do second unit right, watch Michael Mann movies. Because he was talking <laughs> about how much second unit there was in Michael Mann movies. And uh, yeah, I mean, like this all feels so, I mean, his movies all feel like one of a piece. I, I, don't, I don't feel like, yeah. and, and to do it in 58 days, I mean, that seems like how much of that was the was the car racing stuff? Well, it's probably the second half. We only had Penelope for a couple of weeks. So we had a, a very narrow window. So we had to shoot her out at the beginning of the schedule, which is, um, you know, it's really, I think, speaks to their skill, particularly her and Adam, their skill as actors, because they yeah. had to run the whole story arc over the course of like eight days. Um, Maybe uh, easier you know, for just, them in a sense that they could like keep the continuity of it in their in their heads much faster. Yeah, no, for sure. But, you know, I think it's, you know, it's like Adam hadn't witnessed the aftermath of the crash when he had to go back and talk to her about it. You know, oh, it's that's like true. it's a different, you know, it's tricky. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I suppose, I mean, look, I'm not a director, I'm not an actor, but, you know, condensing that stuff into, okay, Mario, you Tomorrow, this is where you're at in the story. The next day, this is where you're at the story. And we did, uh, you know, shoot it relatively in continuity. So, you know, I suppose that helps. But, you know, the second unit thing, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like that that type of stuff is usually schedule driven. It's not it's not creative driven. You know, it's like, OK, we have this many days. So in order to do that, some line producer says, great, we're going to bring in this guy. He's going to shoot second unit. You guys are going to just shoot the first unit stuff with the actors. And then we're going to meld it together. And what that develops into is a bunch of shots of actors reacting to stuff. And then a bunch of car crash or car racing footage that has to be intercut. And it, and it really changes the structure of the movie, I think, in a way. It's like it becomes this, it, it turns the film into a very procedural process, you know, procedural storytelling film. Because you have to kind of bifurcate it in that way. You know, we had the actors with us all the time. You know, the actors were with us and sometimes we saw them and sometimes we didn't. And, it, you know, it, 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 it frees up a director. You know, there's you know, obvious costs to that and, it, you know, it changes changes the kind of mechanics of the filmmaking but i but i also believe that it it makes that seem that border between second unit first unit much less apparent to you know to those of us that know what what that looks like you know i mean you watch you know kind of a conventional action film and you know exactly what the first unit the second unit stuff is you know like okay here's here's jason statham looking off camera saying something clever and then you cut you know in the overcast light and then you cut and there's the car crash you know and it's all bright sun or whatever you know it's like okay well i see exactly how you guys did this you know um yeah so michael on a michael mann movie michael has to direct everything and he should for, for it to really to work that's awesome that's awesome and uh you said that he like would sometimes control the, the zoom did he ever operate the camera oh yeah oh yeah quite a bit all the time you know, I mean, sometimes Michael wants to compose the shot himself or he wants to feel the, you know, feel, I mean, he's not operating the steady cam, but, but, uh, yeah, sometimes he'd take a long lens or camera on the dollar or whatever, you know, and that's fine. I mean, that's, I believe the frame is the director's property. You know, it's like the frame is the principal tool that, the, that the director has to communicate something to the audience. It's how the audience views the film. So if, if the director feels that they need to control the frame then then they, then they absolutely should. It's, I have no problem with that. You know, that's, that's just filmmaking uh, for me. Well, that's awesome. Uh, un unfortunately, I wish that I could talk to you longer. And also, I want to talk to you about The Killer. I'm dying to talk. I mean, I, I love The Killer and I want to talk to you about that as well. I, I feel like you're probably you, you might cancel yourself out this year by being nominated for both. Um, but but uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show and congratulations. Uh, just, you know, an, an amazing job on Ferrari and also an amazing job on The Killer. And uh, as always, look forward to seeing what you have coming up next. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Anytime. So that was Eric Messerschmidt. Thank you again, Eric. It's always great to talk to you. I want to get you on here to talk about The Killer. <laughs> I was itching to talk about it. Uh, hopefully we can do that. And now, short ends. Ilya, so it is now our patent pending uh, short end time where we talk about our pet obsessions of the week. Uh, what, what could possibly be uh, afflicting your mind all the time these days? Well, I feel like I have less and less time to watch stuff that I really like 
and to take shots on things that I really didn't know anything about. There was a uh, documentary, actually, that uh, was at Sundance this year, and it was a big hit called Little Richard, I Am Everything. This is now available on HBO Max. So I watched the first half of it last night. I'm going to watch the second half of it tonight. Uh, But I got to say, I was totally struck by it. And I thought I knew a thing or two about Little Richard. Turns out I knew almost nothing about Little Richard. And it's really, really great. He's like Uh, eight feet tall. Little was always ironic. Yeah, you know, well, not quite eight feet tall, but uh, did you know that? that... (laughs) I don't know anything about Little Richard going. Well, well, uh, Little Richard is sort of the original king of rock and roll. And no no offense to Elvis Presley, but, you know, Little Richard predates him and uh, had this huge following. And there's this wonderful sort of like backstory of different white artists covering his music, trying to make his music, you know, palatable to a white audience, which is which is really interesting. But also, did you know that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones both opened for Little Richard when they were when they were like starting out that's, that's cool. huge that's really huge to have the beatles be your opening act to have little you know to have little richard be the headline and it's it's true they say that like at that time nobody wanted to follow little richard little richard became the headlining act on sometimes these like cavalcade shows with all these people because no one wanted to follow him so it was like little richard he becomes the headliner and he put on this incredible incredible show and they go into a lot of detail about his life and there is i want to say a somewhat cheesy affectation that is done on top of this the whole i am everything there's sort of like this big bang ethereal dust sort of like time lapses of like plants growing and stuff they kind of like they sprinkle throughout this and i don't think it serves any purpose whatsoever except that to for me to distract from the story but the story is so compelling the music is so great and i've just been loving everything about it i get to finish the last like 45 minutes of it tonight and i'm, I'm looking forward to it oh cool well, yeah. i should check that so, out so that is, so yeah that is that's uh that's my obsession this week I, by the I way li- I, yeah. I want to follow up on one of the things that you talked about which was wonka yeah that movie's yeah. freaking magical i love Isn't that it movie. great it's yeah, so it was, good it's really good it was kind of like out of left field for me like you know sitting down to it into it i had no expectations and really was not sure i was going to like anything about it but the movie is just charming, completely works. It works for everybody. It's a, it's a I, great movie. I mean, like, Paddington 2 should have taught us all. Paddington and Paddington 2 should have should have taught us, like, this is a director. This director means business. This is should someone who can take a Star Wars a, movie? an idea. Yeah, let's, I, I, you know what? A thousand percent. Oh, my God. I, w- I am so down for that guy's Star Wars movie. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, my short end is uh, I've been following and I know that I've actually talked about it as a short end before. So I apologize. But our old I I would like to say friend. He's a friend of yours, Michael Cioni. Mm, Yeah. And I have been watching his YouTube channel on the creation of his new AI tool for filmmakers called Strata. And I've been watching. uh, First of all, he's just a very engaging, charismatic unbelievably smart person but he's someone who's like not just good at being smart he's good at being a communicator he's like a science communicator for film stuff i wish that in my life i could ever be as engaging and charismatic as michael cioni and i've been following the progress of strata this whole time but they dropped a new episode uh either today or yesterday called how we got iphone 15 to look like an 8k cinema camera And I would encourage, we should put it in the show notes, I would encourage everyone listening to this to check this out. Michael is not saying stop shooting on cinema cameras, but he's showing how he used the iPhone 15 plus the Blackmagic app, plus the fact that the iPhone 15 has USB-C, so you can record into it, you you can record it to a hard drive, you can use ProRes, and he is theorizing why is Apple putting all of this functionality into a phone? And then he, uh, they even use a thing called a depth scanner, which is an After Effects plugin that you can get to simulate the depth of field. So they used a red Monstro sensor and they shot like a short film and they did, they show you shot by shot comparisons. They show you how they calculated depth of field, uh, how they did focus racks, color grading. Our old pal, uh, Ian Vortovec, who, uh, we know from the test that we did of the HVX 200, that we did in 2005. Uh, Ian color corrected that, and he's still at Light Iron, I guess. Yeah, and sure is. He created a custom LUT for the iPhone on the Black Magic thing, so it would shoot on the Apple RAW. But you could dis- the way they had it set up, the monitor had a LUT baked into it, so you could you could see it with a LUT, 
And the results are pretty awesome. And I got to say, like, I'm looking at it and I'm like kind of shocked at the quality that you're getting out of the iPhone 15. I, I have an iPhone 14. I don't have an iPhone 15. So I'm not quite there yet. All right. So I, I've been following Strata as well up until about probably three, four weeks ago, right before the holidays. I just got sucked in with all sorts of holiday stuff. I was I'm planning on binging and catching back up. Yeah. My question is, for what purpose were they taking this iPhone to try to make it look like a monstro? Like, what what was the, was it just because they could? Was there, like, there was a, a theme? He talks extensively about that. Yeah. And, okay. you know, Michael makes a big deal about how kind of uh, democratization and accessibility, and I, I can attest to this, from the first time you introduced me to Michael, when he was working for a company called Plaster City, part of their deal was you'd go shoot on a highfalutin camera and bring it to them. They would digitize it, put it on your hard drive. You'd go... Uh, off to your office and edit in Final Cut Pro, which was kind of a rogue thing to do at the time, and then bring the final product back to them and they would color grade it and master it and blah, 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 output it to tape for you. That was, you know, in 2003, that was a really impressive thing to do and and a service that nobody was offering. Today, it's not that big of a deal because you're shooting on a card and you have a card reader and you're off to the races. But back then you were shooting on tape and tape meant you needed a deck and a deck was crazy expensive and and a headache and a lot of people didn't have the deck. And so when you even look at like his involvement with things like Frame.io, Michael is someone who's been very involved in figuring out how to democratize certain tools and make filmmaking accessible for people at all levels. And Strata, like what Strata is going to be, I think it's going to be kind of an ongoing story we're going to talk about a lot because they're kind of figuring out what are the AI tools that will simplify the post workflow for filmmakers and editors and give you things that you can't get from the software that currently exists or give you things that the software does, but give them to you in a more accessible, more easy way. Like one of the things I was thinking when I was watching them use this depth scanner plugin on iPhone footage and make it look sort of like a red monster, like they're grading it and it looks good. You know, like he's not saying you should shoot your movie with an iPhone. He says directly, and I've said this, as well. If what you have available to you is an iPhone and that's the best you can do, don't let excessive, don't say, oh, well, I can't shoot my movie till I can get my hands on a Sony Venice. Go make something with an iPhone. It's better to do something now uh, than it is to make an impossible barrier of entry for yourself. You know, like we came up in a world where you had to shoot on film and as a barrier to entry, that was, that sucked. Here's how they set up an iPhone to shoot cinema style. Like they got it as cinema rigged out as they possibly could. And part of it is that Michael's saying like, what's the upgrade path that Apple is seeing? Like Apple basically destroyed point and shoot cameras that you could buy at Best Buy or whatever, Circuit City probably back in that day, like little video cameras and stuff. Yeah, point and shoot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, And so he's wondering if a lot of these pro features are there to maybe go after bigger things like, you know, the A7S uh, kind of crowd. I will tell you that when we start seeing Apple produce all of their Apple TV Plus programs on an iPhone, that will that will tell you. But I I don't well, think we're okay, going to see that here, for a long time. Okay, yeah. so they're not doing yeah. that. But and this is something I didn't know until he mentioned it in this video is that the Apple Keynote from just a couple months ago. You wish that yeah, they, that's they a, filmed it entirely on on, yes. on iPhone 15. They did. Yeah, it's it's very much a publicity stunt. Absolutely. Still. So. I, I watched that keynote and it never occurred to me that it was shot on a phone. Like, I never thought, why does it look like that? I never had that thought. Okay, um, good. So anyway, I think it's worth seeing. And I don't think Michael's saying that the future is we're shooting stuff on iPhones. But it did make me think also like using some, like imagine using some of these tools on a professional camera, but you're like, mm, I wish that I had less depth of field. You, you know, a tool like depth scanner or something you could apply and make it a more cinematic roll off shallower depth of field. Like everything he's doing in here, I, I'm looking at it, I'm going like, uh, step that up to a professional level camera and it becomes, you know, a killer app. I remember when the social network came out and I heard that they had digitally manipulated the depth of field in the uh, rowing sequence with the two, uh, the Winklevoss twins where they, you mm-hmm. know, they had cloned Army Hammer behind himself. And I remember watching that and being like, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if I watched it again today, if I'd be like, oh, that looks digital. 
But like what I saw with Depth Scanner, what they did, I thought it looked pretty good. I thought it, I, I wouldn't question it if I was watching it in something. So again, I'm not saying, I know that you get triggered by the idea of making movies on the iPhone and you're not wrong that for not very much more money, you could get a much better camera. But I think Chioni's point is that like, what's the upgrade path to Apple? Where are they going with adding ProRes and some of the other things that they're putting into these phones like, why are they putting professional tools in the hands of regular schmoes walking around, you know, with using their phones to listen to podcasts and, uh, you know, take holiday pictures? It's no secret. Uh, Apple wants everyone to have an iPhone and not have an Android. They're very, they, you know, they're, they're anything they can possibly do to separate themselves from everybody else out there with the phone. They're trying to do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. We won't be boring to see what happens in the phone space over the next few years. But and, Apple's I, and trying, I will say this again too. Yeah. We got to get Michael on on here to talk about. Ma- Michael's Strata. already Michael's already agreed to come on. It's just a question of when. So it's like you know, I talked to Michael a few months back. We can we can absolutely make it happen. So I'll just have to you know we'll put have to put it on the calendar. Cool. All right, man. Well, I I think that wraps it up for us. Uh, who should we thank this week? Let's thank Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's uh, working on new music for us. Wonderful I composer. heard the new music. He sent me a file of the new music, and it's awesome. Did just one file? He sent me like ninety. No, he sent so. me a file folder that had a <laughs> yes. bunch of music in it. Uh, we got to thank Alana Cody, our producer, who is uh, you know lining up all of these episodes for us, and making sure all this happens, and of course Ben Katz, who has. Probably didn't have the easiest job this week, but, uh, you know, slices, dices, you know, makes thousands of Julian fries, turns <laughs> these podcasts into something that people can actually listen and watch and enjoy. Yeah. Thank you, Ben Katz. So, Ben, uh, where can people listen, find don't you? Listen, don't watch. Uh, <laughs> please find me at benrock.com. You can uh, check check out for all your Benrock and Benrock ben accessories there. Uh, you can uh, watch my reel. Uh, hire me. Feel free to hire me. I'm always hmm. always... I'm always uh, looking for work. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hotrodcameras.com is the website for the store. We sell all manner of camera equipment from, you know, very humble equipment all the way on up to the, you know, the the fastest, the mammest, the jammest, the biggest, the, you know, the bestest. <laughs> so you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. So, cool. so Ben, I think that is just about going to do it this week. You want to take us out? I forgot what our sign off was. Thanks for tuning in <laughs> yeah it's just going to be this awkward thing until we hit stop on the records so yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah i'm gonna go ahead and hit stop then okay bye. bye this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening